it says, you acknowledge and agree that by participating in this task, you may be exposed to content that is pornographic, obscene, indecent, offensive, racist, hateful, violent, or otherwise objectionable or unlawful. And the pay is four cents. This is Rochelle LaPlante. She lives in Los Angeles, and while her kids are at school, she sits at her laptop at home, flagging offensive stuff that people have posted on social media sites. We had her record some messages to you while she was on the job. Sometimes in the evenings after my kids have gone to bed, I'll work on it as well. Rochelle spends hours looking at all kinds of photos and videos and messages so you and I don't ever have to see them. I'm Anoush Samarodi, and note to self, the next time you log into Facebook or Instagram or a dating website, be glad you don't see some of the things that have been removed. Pictures and posts have been deleted in the name of human decency, or for other reasons that up until now have largely been kept a secret. But thanks to people like Rochelle who are speaking out and some recent leaks to the press, the secrecy around content moderation is starting to evaporate. And it's going to leave us with a lot of big questions, but we'll get to that. First, Rochelle is here to explain more about how the job of content moderating actually works and why it only pays four cents a click. (laughs) Sure. I review content that uh, Internet users have submitted to various websites through apps. And it's all kinds of content. It's videos, photos, text. And what I'm doing is I'm looking at it and seeing if it meets the guidelines for the variety of websites that are out there. Um, Each website kind of sets their own guidelines as to what's acceptable and what's not. All right, so I've got an image here that I'm supposed to be assessing and determining if it's got mature content, which includes nudity, sex, exposed genitals, graphic nudity, artistic nudes, and female nipples. The picture that I've got to assess is a woman in um, a bikini, and she's standing in a pretty provocative type position. Since she does have clothing on, I'm going to mark safe image. Sometimes I know who I'm working for, like I'll get a video sent to me from YouTube and it's very clear that it's YouTube because their name's on it. And then other times you'll get photos and you don't know who it's from or what site it's for or what app it's for. If you get a giant set of um, photos of maybe feet and you don't know why are we looking through these feet or maybe you'll get someone's old family photos and they're all black and white. And so why are we going through these old family photos and determining if there's anything inappropriate in them? Okay, so I've just accepted a job that asks me to evaluate photos um, for a dating profile website. So um, now I have to mark if he looks smart. I'm going to say somewhat smart. Does he look trustworthy? He doesn't look trustworthy. He looks pretty scruffy and scary. So I'm going to say no on that. So just to go with the feet example here, like what were the instructions with all of these pictures of feet? The feet one, they didn't want anything that had shoes or socks on. They wanted bare feet only. So you had to go through and remove and flag any photos that had the feet covered in any way. So, I don't know. My brain is going to all sorts of places. Maybe it was stock (laughs) photos and they wanted that. Maybe it was a foot fetish site. It absolutely could be. But you don't know. It could be for someone, you know, maybe they're just training an algorithm to be able to recognize feet photos. Oh. How many pictures of feet can you look at, let's say, you did an hour of work? Like, what could you earn realistically. Once you have the guidelines memorized for that project, then you can kind of go through it pretty quickly. So um, having a faster computer and faster internet definitely is a benefit. 
So it's kind of depends on how quickly you're able to look at the photo and make that mental determination about what to do with it and then uh, click one way or the other. I mean, from what you're describing, like, okay, so you get to work from home, you can go at your own speed, seems like Mm -hmm. a pretty easy way to make some money. Is there a downside to this? The downside is definitely that you don't quite know what you're going to run into with these photos. Sometimes you could be looking through feet and then surprised there's something completely pornographic with a foot and you weren't expecting that. Or you could be looking at photos of someone's family vacation and then there it suddenly switches and now you're looking at dead people. There's no warning and there's you just never know what's going to be at that next click. I mean, can I can I ask what is the worst thing you've seen? Um, probably just about anything you could imagine. Um, child pornography, dead people, war images, very graphic animal abuse, uh, pretty much anything you can think of that humanity may take a photo of has probably ended up in a content moderation photo set or video set at some point. And, and what do you do when you see something that is, never mind just disturbing, but illegal? It's up to the company who has posted that photo and wants it moderated to decide what to do. And if they want to contact the police or if they want to follow up or if they want to ignore it, that's completely um, on them. There's a big conversation sort of going on right now about the guidelines that a lot of these tech companies, particularly social media companies like Facebook, have in place about what's okay and what's not okay. Mm -hmm. What do you think about the discussion going on? Um, I think it's an important discussion to have, and I think that would help the content moderators if the public was aware ahead of time of exactly what was going to be moderated and why. I think that may cut down on some of the graphic images if there was more knowledge about what can and can't be published and why. What do you think is their reasoning about not making them public? I think to an extent they don't want to talk about it at all. And it's kind of a shameful thing for these big, giant social media platforms who make so much money to talk about that they're paying these content moderators pennies to do this kind of work. Facebook is hiring, it says, a lot more humans to be content moderators. What do you think about that? It's definitely needed. Um, My reading was that they're hiring 3,000 additional contract content moderators who will likely be somewhere, you know, in the Philippines or similar. It's just kind of a never-ending cycle, though. It's like, when is enough going to be enough? They'll hire 3,000 now, and then in a few months, are they going to need more? And then in a few months after that, are they going to need more? And where does it end? How big is this going to get? And what is the end solution? And I don't know what that is. I mean, maybe we should just be like, okay, this is a thing. This is a job in the new era that we live in. And so they should be paid properly and there should be uh, counseling if needed. And it just should, it's just a job. It's not something that has to be done for pennies by people who don't feel like they can talk about it or know who's even paying them. Right. Yep. I agree. And I think that's one of the biggest problems is that there doesn't seem to be any interest from the, you know, million and billionaire um, social media platforms in doing that. So when it comes to seeing, I mean, that sounds horrifying. Like if you're Mm -hmm. seeing animals being abused, Mm -hmm. humans being abused, what, I mean, how do you like close down the laptop and go make dinner for your kids? Yeah, that's, that's one thing that's difficult. And I think over time, that's kind of a barrier that you grow, kind of a thicker skin, um, an ability to kind of look at it, but not look at it. If you know what I mean, you can kind of look at the image enough to know that this is something I need to flag uh, and then 
move on to the next one and try not to think about the previous images too much. Yeah, it's kind of easier not to think about it, isn't it? But coming up, Facebook's private guidelines for content moderators recently got leaked to The Guardian. What those guidelines are and why what you see on Facebook in the U.S. could be completely different in another country. We'll be right back. It's Note to Self. I'm Anoush Zamarodi, and we're talking about the semi-secretive job of the content moderator. Work that didn't exist just a decade ago, but now you could do it right from your laptop at home. But why can you do it right from your laptop at home? Why don't dating sites or Instagram or wherever hire people to work for them as proper employees? I mean, this work seems pretty important to their businesses, right? Well, the way these companies have chosen to moderate their content actually tells us a lot about how Silicon Valley evolved in the first place. And for that story, let's turn to someone who's been studying content moderators and the work they do almost as long as these platforms have been around. My name is Sarah T. Roberts. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Information Studies in the Graduate School of Education and Information Studies at UCLA. Sarah's fascination with content moderation and the people who do it started one summer seven years ago when she was working on her Ph.D. at the University of Illinois. I picked up a New York Times along with a morning coffee and in the technology section in July of 2010 was a small story about workers in uh, rural Iowa, not unlike the place I was sitting in central Illinois, who were working in call center-like environments and their job was to look at social media content that was being submitted to unnamed platforms and make decisions about whether or not that material should be allowed to stay on the platform. And one of the main points of the article was to say that some of the workers were having psychological trouble based on the work that they did. And I was just, I was just awestruck. So the first thing I actually did was I turned to my peers and I also asked professors, many of whom are sort of like world-class scholars on similar topics. And I asked everyone, have you ever heard of this? Have you ever heard of this practice as being organized and for pay and uh, contracted out in this way? And in every single case, the first thing is that people said, no, I never thought about it. Then they kind of thought about it for a second and said, don't computers do that? So that's how I knew I was onto something. And here it was right next door to me in Iowa, people who probably looked and came from backgrounds very similar to mine, people who a couple generations ago would have been working on their family farms, for example. And now they were doing this kind of work for fairly low pay, and it sounded like it was putting them in potentially difficult, even dangerous situations, and I couldn't stop thinking about it. But uh, what ended up happening is that I was actually put in touch with some workers who were working out in Silicon Valley at a major technology platform and social media platform that I can't 
name due to confidentiality reasons, but they were on site going there every day alongside all the engineers and coders and, and project managers, but they themselves were contractors. So they would joke with me, you know, this means we can't get the free sushi or we can't <laughs> use the, you know, we can't use the climbing wall in the middle of the building. And they kind of like, you know, they saw that as a little bit absurd and ridiculous. But then this was pre-Obamacare. You know, they leveled with me and they said, this also means that we don't have company health insurance. And that's a real problem for us. And when you think that there might be psychological ramifications for doing this work, that lack of health care became a real specter. I mean, why treat them like an underclass of employee or why contract it out to people? I mean, is it merely because it's cheap? You don't need a degree to be able to moderate content? Well, actually, everyone I've spoken to around the world has actually possessed a college degree. So it's not that. Frankly, the work that they were doing at the platform was somewhat stigmatized in the sense that it wasn't as valued and as highly regarded as other types of work that was more public-facing or more technologically innovative in other areas of the company. And in that sense, the work was paid less. It was given a different status, a lower status, and it was really often an afterthought. I mean, in retrospect, that seems like a huge, huge missed opportunity. Like, is that what could have been? There was a moment where they could have said, you know what, we are going to make this a priority. We're going to make sure that this is a place where people feel safe. But, But they didn't. Well, I think you're right. One of the things I was kind of speculating about earlier on in my research on this topic was, you know, what would it look like if a firm came out with a platform where instead of pretending like this activity didn't go on or, or it wasn't undertaken by humans, they instead changed the rhetoric or the marketing around it and talked about their vetted curators or their uh, taste makers. But because of the, the entrenched mentality in Silicon Valley around the inherent superiority of computation and machines to things like human judgment. I think it wasn't, they weren't able to see it, but it's actually had real material consequences for workers, workers whose work is typically hidden, whether it's hidden because it's sent somewhere else in the world or it's hidden because it's under non-disclosure. It's hidden because it's low status and low wage. That was a, a direction that they kind of chose to go. The Guardian just came out with a piece leaking the guidelines that Facebook has for what should be taken down by moderators and what should stay. Yes, what we really have is a series of documents that indicate a lot of things that the public otherwise would have no way of knowing, including clear evidence of the politics of Facebook. Hmm. Because what we have is a whole bunch of information about what they allow and what they disallow. And despite the fact that Facebook and other platforms like it have been telling the public that they are tech firms first and that they don't engage in editorial practices, for example, as we might think of in the context of journalism, kind of things you have to think about, frankly, what we have here is evidence to the contrary, that in fact, Facebook engages in editorial practices all the time. It just doesn't call those practices editorial. I mean, I'm just reading this list. Like, Sarah, it says, The Guardian has seen documents applied to Facebook moderators within the last year. Here, I'm just going to quote a few. Videos of violent deaths, while marked as disturbing, do not always have to be deleted because they can help create awareness of issues such as mental illness. 
some photos of non-sexual physical abuse and bullying of children do not have to be deleted or actioned unless there is a sadistic or celebratory element. Photos of animal abuse can be shared with only extremely upsetting imagery to be marked as disturbing. And I don't I don't know even where to start like pulling that apart. Like part of me is like, wait a minute, these are definitely editorial guidelines. But yeah. these like if we were in a newsroom, there would be a heated debate about right. what constituted what. You can't it's not yes or no answers to this stuff. And then the other thing is like, you know, after talking to like Rochelle, she's sitting alone in her bedroom deciding in 10 right. seconds and being paid 4 cents about whether right. something is sadistic or not. I mean, <sighs> and then also like why should she decide because there's also the free speech element. So I I I feel my mind feels pulled in multiple directions by this information. Well, I think what you've just put your foot in, uh, so to speak, is is the mess, is the mess of the ramifications of having these platforms. I think this is the conundrum. What we have here is a question of the eye of the beholder. And we also have a question of who's in charge. And those two things together combine to deeply influence the policies that Facebook and other platforms engage in around their moderation. Although this is a company based in Silicon Valley, California, Facebook is global. And so it transcends all of these borders and geopolitical situations, and yet it's still subject to them. In the case of Germany, for example, Germany has very stringent hate speech laws on the books because of its own difficult and dark past. They put pressure on Facebook to follow German law in order to be in the German marketplace. Facebook responded by putting together a call center in Berlin, stocked with uh, culturally and linguistically skilled workers. Recently in Thailand, the new king there has been causing quite a, a furor by doing things like showing up at shopping malls and tank tops with all his tattoos being displayed and so on. And Thailand has told Facebook that according to Thai law, those kinds of images aren't allowed and it must respond following Thai law. There are all kinds of deals that Facebook and other platforms must cut with regimes that may be oppressive in order to be in the marketplace. And this is where we get into questioning, you know, who determines what speech is political and who determines what speech ought to be allowed to be on the platform, even if others object to it. So documents like this leaked material and probably more to come will elucidate more of these kinds of arrangements. And then we will know more about what is actually going on behind the scenes. Now, we have seen especially in the aftermath of the recent presidential election here in the U.S., Facebook says it's hiring more content moderators. Google says it's going to be looking out for fake advertisements. The tech companies seem to be um, cognizant that something is going on here and that they have to at least be seen to take some action. Right. I think that's true. And I think we mustn't lose sight of the fact that those are responses that have come after – uh, pretty significant pressure from the press, from civil society, and from the public at large, ultimately the users. So the bottom line threat to platforms is the thought that they might turn off or lose users. So what you see is the platform's attempt to wrestle with the need to straddle the line of allowing people to feel like their platform is a place where they can kind of freely express themselves and engage themselves without being hindered in that process versus everybody else's desire to not go on there and be sickened um, or even permanently disturbed 
or marred by something they might see, like opening up Facebook and having an autoplay of a video that shows someone being killed. Uh, How does one recover from that? No. I think ultimately platforms are going to bump up against their own hubris and their own fundamental belief in the ability to apply technological solutions to social problems. I think it may be an ill-fitting kind of uh, solution for what is ultimately um, a problem of human nature. Mm. Uh, How can they actually adequately account for this predilection on the part of some people to do awful things to others and then to film it or to record it or to upload it or to share it around? But the problem here, too, Manoush, is if they they actually admitted that (laughs) – they would actually have to start answering to some other very difficult things that I don't think they're fully prepared to do. To what extent does the existence of these platforms serve as an impetus to people to behave in some of these ways that Mm. we're talking about? Mm -hmm. I don't know that Facebook or anyone else can answer that question. I think that's a question that we must collectively, socially answer to. Sarah Roberts, thank you so much. Yeah, you bet. It's been a pleasure. Okay, we'll link to those Guardian articles that we mentioned, plus lots of other good and relevant stuff on this topic at notetoselfradio.org and in our newsletter this week. And I just want to add, we reached out to Twitter and Facebook to learn more about how they handle content moderation. Twitter sent us a written statement about their guidelines and approach, which mentioned a resilience program and counseling for employees. But when we asked for clarification about whether content moderators are considered contractors or employees who get access to those resources, Twitter declined to share any additional info. As for Facebook, we spoke to a press person by phone who told us that anyone who reviews content for the company is offered psychological support and wellness resources. She also said if their moderators flag something illegal, like terrorism, child pornography, or sex trafficking, Facebook reports it to law enforcement and then follows up. So that's the show for this week. But I just want to say that we have so many good episodes in the works for you. You're going to hear a great Steve Jobs impression. You're going to learn about technology that could help you right off a cliff and discover that you might be playing the world's top video game right now and not even know it. Yeah. Intrigued? I think you might be. Well, these episodes will be coming at you every week, bam, 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 in your podcast feed this summer. So subscribe so they are downloaded and ready to go when you head out on a road trip. But for now, the Note to Self team is Jen Poyant, Kat Aaron, Megan Cunane, and Joe Plourd. Many thanks to Matt Boynton for his help this week, too. Note to Self is a production of WNYC Studios. I'm Manoush Samarodi. And then I have to mark if he looks attractive. Um, I'm going to say no, he doesn't look attractive.